Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We're going to be having a really fun topic this morning, uh, the topic of anger. So we should just jump right in. Uh, the other week, I was on vacation in Michigan, hashtag Pure Michigan, love it there. Um, yeah, we are not sponsored, but... If you're listening, we're open to it. Uh, but I, it, was, it was a great time, and a few of the days I got to uh, go on some really long bike rides. And let me tell you, there is nothing like cycling on a wide open country road with farms on one side and Lake Michigan on the other, especially when, like me and most of us, you're used to riding busy city streets or an overcrowded lakefront path. I love you, Chicago, but you can be a bit too much sometimes, right? The first ride I did was on a weekday around lunchtime, so there were like no cars on the road, just wide open, and if there was a car that needed to pass me, they would just politely get into the other side of the road and go by. But the second ride I did just happened to be on a Friday at around 5 p.m. I was on vacation. I didn't know what time it was, but apparently they have rush hour up there too. Um, And so this time there were quite a few more cars on the road, sadly. And it also turns out, just like Chicago, some of the drivers up there aren't the biggest fans of cyclists either. So most of them just politely passed me by and and did their thing. But the road kind of, I was in the shoulder, but the road kind of got a bit narrower. And so I kind of had to be in the the lane. And uh, they didn't like that. I would occasionally kind of block traffic and cause a bit of a slowdown behind me. And that's when one lovely person decided to zoom past me, uh, yelling things like, get off the road and probably called me some names I shouldn't say here in church. Um, And I debated how to respond to this person. Uh, They had already zoomed by, so I knew, you know, yelling at them, uh, an insult, or even coming up with some really creative combination of cuss words, it just wouldn't deliver the powerful comeback that I know I'm capable of. So I thought maybe I I could catch up to them, just maybe, right? So I I remained silent, but I stood up on my pedals and pushed back and forth as as quickly as I could. My phone said I got up to 30 miles an hour, um, which was pretty good, but they they were long gone, right? And sadly, my revenge was just in their rearview mirror. I don't know what I would have done if I would have caught up with them. And I don't think I want to know what I'm capable of, to be honest. I probably just would have gotten beat up. But seriously, I, I'm, not, I'm not that proud to share that story. And, and I make a joke of it. But there was something going on inside of me. But I can relax. And I, I feel comfortable sharing that because we all experience anger. We may not all respond to our anger in the same way. But we have all felt angry before because it's one of the most basic human emotions. It's simply part of human experience. The majority of scientists and psychologists around the world agree that humans experience five or six universal emotions. In the Atlas of Emotions, Dr. Paul Ekman names six universal emotions. Anger, fear, disgust, sadness, surprise, and enjoyment. Others have used the helpful acronym SASHE, which lists these emotions or feelings. Sad, 
angry, scared, happy, excited, and tender. Those lists are really similar because an overwhelming majority of scientists, 88% according to a study in 2014, agree that humans around the world and throughout history have experienced these emotions. Some form of sadness, fear, disgust, happiness, surprise, and anger are just part of life as we know it. Now, while we all experience these emotions, we don't all respond to them in the same way. It's incredibly important for us to recognize the difference between feeling an emotion and our action in response to that emotion. For example, some people choose to argue or pick a fight when they're angry with a friend. Others do something completely different and just ignore that person, right? Some people choose to scream at cyclists and others just plot their revenge in silence. <laughs> Clearly, some responses can be a bit more mild while others are obviously a lot more destructive. If we're honest, I think most of us are a lot more familiar with the destructive responses to emotions rather than the constructive or helpful ones. That's why we tend to associate negative things with things like sadness, fear, or anger, and positive things with emotions like happiness, excitement, or enjoyment. And while it's absolutely true that some emotions are harder to experience than others, it's important for us to recognize that emotions in and of themselves are neither good nor bad. They just are. Sadness, while it may feel difficult or unpleasant, can actually lead to a positive, helpful, constructive action. I want to look at an example, and I do have to make a disclaimer here that I know just enough psychology to be dangerous. I'm a pastor, not a therapist. Um, so most of this that I found is the work of Dr. Paul Ekman, and they have a website that they've made called the Atlas of Emotions, which is really helpful. On that website, they give this timeline of an emotional response. And the left side shows three things that happen um, that cause you to feel an emotion. There's the precondition, the event, and the perceptual database. Don't worry, I'll give a, a real tangible example to explain what each of those things are. But those three things lead you to feel an emotion, which is this combination of mental and physical changes in your body. And then you respond to that emotional state in a constructive, destructive, or ambiguous way. Here's a fleshed out example on the emotion of sadness. Let's say one day you have this precondition, you were just listening to sad music, you like that music, it doesn't always put you into a sad emotion, but that's just what you were doing that day. But then an event happens, which is a friend gets angry with you, and that reminds you, maybe even subconsciously, of a, of a time that you felt rejection. This then leads your body to feel weak and you feel sort of a mental sense of emptiness, which, which puts you into an emotional state of sadness. Here's where we get to the response. From this place of sadness, you could respond in one of three ways. The obviously destructive response is in the middle, which is to be ashamed of your sadness and to just wallow in it, right? A constructive response is at the top. It's to call a loved one. It's, it's to seek someone you know who will help you. And then the third response is to ignore the feeling all together. They call this an ambiguous response because 
sometimes it can be helpful, sometimes it can be hurtful. It's, it's kind of up in the air, it just depends on the situation. But what I really want us to see, and what I'm trying to get at with this whole thing, is that we all um, can have the same emotional state, but it can lead to so many different reactions. Now what does all this have to do with the book of Proverbs? Well, as Pastor Melissa taught last week, the book of Proverbs is all about practical wisdom. It's all about finding this, this pursuit, uh, this love, this desire to embrace the wisdom that God has laid out, yes, in the book of Proverbs, but ultimately in the life of Jesus, rather than the wisdom of the cultural moment in which we live. And like any healthy discipline, true wisdom must be holistic. It must engage the entire person. True wisdom involves not just intellectual intelligence, but emotional intelligence as well. That's why themes of anger and other emotions are all throughout the book of Proverbs. And while a surface level, quick glance reading of the Proverbs may lead us to believe a misconception that anger is bad, when we take a deeper look, we see that the writer of Proverbs understood something about emotion that we would only later find the scientific language for. And that's this, of all the basic emotions that we just talked about, anger tends to be the most common, while also having the potential for the most harmful responses. Anger has the potential to do some serious damage. Listen to a few of these proverbs about anger. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered. Those who are hot-tempered stir up strife, but those who are slow to anger calm contention. Anger has the potential to lead to conflict and harm relationships. It stirs up violence and rage. It causes blood pressure to spike and can have real health consequences. But I'm not an angry person, you might be thinking. Fair enough. It's true, different personality types have different um, you know, emotional responses. Some are more, more prone to anger than others. Where are the Enneagram eights in the room? Okay, good, you don't have to raise your hand. I knew you wouldn't want to. Um, but but we, all, we all experience anger, right, in some way or another. From the mildest feeling of annoyance to bitterness to outright fury. If you've ever said, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated, then you've experienced anger. Frustration <laughs> is just anger's more socially acceptable cousin. <laughs> but let me reiterate, feeling angry or frustrated is not wrong or sinful. The Apostle Paul assumed that his fellow Christians would experience anger. The question is not if we'll feel angry, but what will we do with our anger? That's why Paul wrote this to the Ephesian Christians. In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. It's okay to feel angry, but it's not okay to become hot-tempered like the Proverbs we just read. A hot-tempered person is someone who lets their anger make them explode with insults and coarse language. A hot-tempered person stirs up arguments and loves conflict. They lash out in violence and rage. A hot-tempered person does what Jesus famously taught was as serious as murder. Listen to these words from Jesus. 
You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Even for Jesus, though, it's not so much the feeling of anger that he calls out. It's the way in which anger infiltrates relationships and causes division between people. To harbor anger and contempt toward another person and say Raka was like calling that person a useless fool. It was one of the most just rude and mean and hurtful things that someone could have said to someone else at that time. Jesus himself the embodiment of godly wisdom, knew that explosive anger is a living picture of the exact opposite of wisdom. It's foolishness. As it said in Proverbs 14, 29, one who is quick-tempered displays folly. So if we all experience anger, and we've seen countless examples of how not to respond, what are we supposed to do to handle our anger in a healthy way? Should we just suppress it or bottle it up for another day or pretend it doesn't exist at all? Absolutely not. As the Atlas of Emotions says, we do not want to get rid of our emotions. We want strategies that help us respond in helpful, constructive ways. So if we return to the book of Proverbs, I think we'll find one of the most powerful strategies to counteract these destructive anger responses. Let me read a few Proverbs for us, and, and let's see if we can find the common thread. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is one's glory to overlook an offense. Do you see the common thread running through each of these proverbs? The antidote to a hot temper and destructive anger is the virtue of patience. Patience calms a conflict. Patience flows from wisdom. Patience leads to self-control. It's no coincidence that one of the most famous descriptions of love recorded in all of literature uses this word as the first and primary characteristic. You know it, love is patient. But patience in the midst of anger is brutally difficult because it's natural for anger to compel us to act with urgency. In his book, Emotional Intelligence, Daniel Goleman writes about how anger causes blood to flow to our hands, making it easier for us to strike an enemy or grab a weapon. That explains how I felt on my bike in Michigan. <laughs> Our heart rates speed up, and a rush of adrenaline makes us want to take immediate action, or at least yell a couple swear words at the top of our lungs. Anger and patience are like water and oil. They do not easily mix. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, reminded his readers of this truth. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger 
does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Easier said than done, right? How do we put this kind of patience into practice? Well, one way is to just slow down our lives in general. Most of us are so busy that we leave one thing early in order to get to the next thing late. Rushing and hurrying are just the norm in our society. But as Dallas Willard, the great philosopher, famously said, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. And yet we've become so accustomed to it that we've developed an entitlement to instant gratification. How can we expect ourselves to practice patience in a moment of heated anger when we can't even be patient if our Amazon order doesn't arrive in that two-day window, right? We have to begin cultivating patience in just normal, everyday life, and then patience in the midst of anger will follow. Let me give just a few practical ideas for how we might do this. First, have you heard of the acronym HALT, H-A-L-T? I think it's pretty common. It stands for hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. The basic idea is that whenever you're feeling one of those triggers, right? Hunger, anger, loneliness, tiredness, we should stop what we're doing and halt. Why? Because we're so much more likely to do something destructive when we're experiencing one of those things, let alone a combination of them. It's no big deal when my delivery driver is a few minutes late if I'm not even hungry, but if I'm hangry, it might as well be the end of the world if he comes 15 minutes later than that app said he would, and I'm finding a way to contact customer service. <laughs> I've gotten a few refunds that way. Uh, <laughs> I'm proud of that, but <laughs> it's, it's in those moments, right? It's in those moments when patience is what wisdom would answer to what we may feel is righteous anger, right? Remember the Proverbs, whoever's patient has great understanding. A person's wisdom yields patience. Better a patient person than a warrior. That runs against the grain of our culture. But sometimes patience isn't enough. Even if we don't explode or have a hot temper in that moment or contact customer service, anger can remain simmering on the back burner of our lives. It could look like years of bitterness and resentment that I've bottled up and try to ignore. It could look like a grudge with an old friend or family member that I just can't muster up forgiveness for. Whatever it is, it eventually bubbles up and comes to the surface of our lives. That's why one way to think about anger is like an iceberg. I think we have an image, yeah. While anger may express itself outwardly, it's really only the tip of the iceberg. Look at this image. So much of the iceberg exists under the surface of the water. That's why psychologist Kyle Benson says that when we're angry, there can be other emotions hidden beneath the surface. It's easy to see a person's anger, but it can be difficult to see the underlying feelings that anger is protecting. Sometimes underneath the surface, what we're really experiencing is not only anger, but embarrassment, loneliness, sadness, fear, or some combination of emotions. 
In order to overcome destructive anger, we have to get to the bottom of the iceberg and figure out what's going on, what's really causing it. In that sense, our anger might be similar to a check engine light in a car. It gives us a warning sign that there's something going on and we have to look into it before moving forward. And while it is tempting to just ignore that check engine light and keep driving, it can be really dangerous, right? The same is true with anger or frustration that we allow to simmer on the back burner. Rather than ignore, fix, or suppress it, we must face our anger head on to determine the warning signs that it may be trying to show us. At the end of the day, we can't overcome anger and embody this patient lifestyle perfectly on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to see the root cause of our anger and find a new way forward. And we can't control the external circumstances of our lives. Often, we have really actually good reasons to be angry because of the real pain, the real difficulty, the real injustices that occur all around us. But our anger is exacerbated or accelerated because of our attempts to try to control others or to try to control the world around us. We cannot control the circumstances of our lives, but we can control how we respond to them. So I want to close with just one final practice. Again, I'm a pastor, not a therapist, but I've found this this prayer practice to be immensely helpful with regard to regulating emotions like anger. It's a prayer practice known as welcoming prayer. And the welcoming prayer was developed by Thomas Keating um, kind of alongside an organization known as Contemplative Outreach. Here's what they say about this practice. The welcoming prayer is a method of consenting to God's presence and action in our physical and emotional reactions to events and situations in daily life. The purpose of the welcoming prayer is to deepen our relationship with God through consenting in the ordinary activities of our day. Start practicing the welcoming prayer with the little things in life, small, everyday frustrations like sitting in traffic or waiting in line at the grocery store. Practicing with the small things prepares us for the bigger upsets. When we practice welcoming prayer, we we put Psalm 46 into practice, where God himself invites us to be still and know that I am God. We join the Apostle Paul in surrendering control and finding contentment in any situation. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So the next time you're in traffic and someone cuts you off, try this prayer instead of doing what I did on my bike in Michigan, right? That's going to serve you a lot better, I promise. Um, here's, here's how it works, just quickly. First, you begin, you know, get into a prayerful place, get into a prayerful posture with God. But when something happens, like getting cut off in traffic or whatever it might be, um, allow yourself to feel 
and, and just kind of sit with whatever it is you're experiencing at that moment, if it's anger or sadness or whatever. And just, just let your emotions be. Oh, I'm, I'm angry that this person did this to me or cut me off or whatever. I feel it. I, my, my fists clench. I feel it. Then welcome what you're experiencing in that moment and, and try to acknowledge, okay, God's with me. I'm angry. That's okay. It's just true. Just welcome it. And then when you're ready, just try to get to a place of, of letting go and surrendering that emotion back to God. Um, these words from Thomas Keating, he wrote this prayer as a way of engaging with this. He wrote this, welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it's for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. I open myself to the love and presence of God and God's action within. Amen. These are not easy words to pray, right? Most of us find these kinds of things very, very difficult, and for good reason. It's, it's, it involves a, a lot of letting go. And, and these kinds of prayers invite us to do two very difficult things. First, to acknowledge and just embrace the very real difficult emotions that we face, like anger, fear, and sadness. And then to go a step further and boldly surrender them back to God. So when we pray these words. We pray them not because we can perfectly live them. We pray them as a plea for God to help us along the way, along the ups and downs of this roller coaster of life. So I want to close just by praying those words again um, and trying to, trying to mean them and trying to, to own them as best as we can, even today. None of us know what's going to happen in the rest of our day if, if a moment of anger, a moment of sadness might come. So let's just try to embody this welcoming stance, this welcoming posture toward um, whatever God sends our way. Let's pray. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it's for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. I open myself to the love and presence of God and God's action within. Amen. One key aspect of this um, welcoming prayer and, and engaging our emotions like this is there's, there's our part that we have to play and then there's God's part. And again, we cannot do this kind of thing on our own. We have a role and God has a role. It's similar to communion, right? We simply just have to 
make the bread or pick it up at the store, right? It, it's not something that just drops out of heaven for us. It, it involves an action of, of tilling the ground and growing the wheat and baking the bread and making the wine or juice in our case, right? And so it, it has a role. We have to show up and come to the table, but God does the rest. God is the host. God is the one who, who truly provides and sustains us. So, all right, let's pray one final time as we come to the table. God, thank you for, for meeting us in and through not only our minds, not only our emotions, but in physical, tangible ways too. Um, so uh, I just see this image even now of how we may clench our fists in anger or even in sadness, we tense up. But the table, here you invite us to open and receive. So help us unclench our fists um, to receive your love, your embrace, like we sang earlier, um, your kindness, your gentleness um, as we come to the table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.